Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Tonight, with the crisis in Afghanistan, where many are desperately trying to leave the country, in scenes that look like the opening episode of The Handmaid's Tale, but in real life. Evacuations resumed overnight after being halted earlier due to the chaotic scenes of Afghans rushing to U.S. military planes and trying desperately to climb on board. Incidents in which some people died. And despite those harrowing scenes, Americans and some of our Afghan allies are getting out. Between 700 and 800 people were evacuated last night, with more than 3,000 people evacuated in total since the fall of the Afghan capital, Kabul, some in astonishing conditions. Check out this stunning photo showing hundreds of people crammed into a U.S. military plane heading to Qatar. U.S. officials said yesterday they'd be prepared to take more than 20,000 Afghans who were candidates for special immigrant visas. And the State Department said today that 2,000 holders of those visas have been relocated so far. But as The New York Times points out, there are tens of thousands of Afghan nationals who risked their lives to assist the U.S. military, and thousands are stuck in a years-long backlog to receive their visas. More than 300,000 civilians have been affiliated with the American mission over its two-decade presence in the country. The State Department said today that they're working to assist eligible Afghans with those visas. The U.S. Embassy is asking that civilians stay away from the airport until they're contacted. But many may not be able to reach the airport at all. Though the White House said today that the Taliban had pledged to allow safe passage for civilians to the airport, there are reports of armed checkpoints all over the country, as well as beatings and searches for evidence of government contacts or compromising material they might deem un-Islamic. An interpreter in Kabul told NBC News that he doesn't feel safe and has no way to get to the airport. His face and voice are obscured for his protection. Right now I am in Kabul, and Kabul is surrounded by the Taliban. I'm not safe here. There's all the documents to prove that I was an interpreter. And Politico reports that U.S. lawmakers from both sides of the aisle say that distress calls to help evacuate U.S. residents, Afghan interpreters, and other asylum seekers have flooded their offices. The Taliban claims that they'll respect women's rights with, within Islamic law, a claim that deserves a healthy dose of skepticism. There have been reports that women have been told to go home from work, as well as forced marriages and executions in recent weeks. In Kabul recently, a beauty salon with an image of a woman not wearing a hijab was painted over. And there are devastating accounts from Afghan women on social media and in interviews. I don't know if they're going to start searching like civilians' houses because that way I'll be really scared. I, I'll have to like hide pretty much everything that I have because I think, considering the people that they were back to, to the 20 years ago, I think I'll be in trouble if they find my documents or my musical instruments or stuff like that. Coming from everywhere. They are like just getting up from a wall. I see them right now. Can you please help us? 
Joining me now, Congresswoman Chrissy Houlihan of Pennsylvania, a member of the Armed Services and Foreign Affairs Committee and an Air Force veteran, and Richard Stengel, former Undersecretary of State for Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs in the Obama administration. And Representative Houlihan, I'm going to start with you. Those, it's so heartbreaking to hear uh, Afghan women crying out for help. They're not safe uh, One would, if they have any sort of modern sensibility with the Taliban in charge. In your view, what should be happening now to speed it up and get more people out. Sure, and, and thank you for having me. And I, my, you know, heart hurts listening to those uh, clearly uh, painful cries for help. There's a lot that we can be doing right now to uh, speed it up, so to speak. We need to be doing, as we have been, the steady and progressive evacuation of those people who have supported and helped us. The Pentagon did give a briefing today that they believe that that is in process. And I, uh, they asked for us to you know, judge the results, and the results will speak for themselves. And I will, I will withhold my judgment to see if that's indeed working. We need to make sure that people have pathways to get to the airport. And that seems to be a struggle right now that we can uh, provide help on. We need to make sure, to your point about uh, women and, and particularly children who are in peril right now, that the NGO networks, our, our national um, nonprofit networks across the planet are working and that we are helpful in that in that effort. We need to also be thinking about what the future of this government might look like and whether we have any levers to pull in terms of sanctions. So we have a lot that we can be doing uh, to be helpful right now. And I think it's our obligation and responsibility to do that. Uh, and also, we have the obligation in Congress to be asking the questions of how we got here. Uh, and I'd be happy to talk to you more about that as well, if you'd like. Yeah. Oh, no, I, I have a question about that coming up. But before we get to that, I want to pause just for a minute just to ask Richard Stengel. You've been in the State Department because the State State Department is going to be on point, taking point in terms of getting people out, um, not just Americans, um, but also our Afghan allies and anyone who, who would, might qualify to get one of those special immigrant visas. Uh, I want you to listen to the one person who seemed to really get it uh, from day one about what might happen in that country um, from, from the start. This is uh, Representative Barbara Lee. She was on with on uh, Chris Hayes' show last night. I knew then that um, it could spiral out of control and that uh, if we didn't think through the impact and the implications, and I've been thinking about this this week because now uh, I'm terrified and I'm, I'm really uh, so worried and like everyone, uh, concerned and working every hour to try to figure out how we make sure that no more lives are taken, that Afghans are transported out and evacuated. And, and while, you know, I think the analogy isn't perfect, this isn't Vietnam, but uh, it's a progressive Vietnam organization, American organization made a statement saying it's our responsibility and moral obligation as Americans who have dedicated 20 years of effort and $1 trillion U.S. dollars to do all we can to protect the Afghan people, especially those who worked alongside the U.S. government and military. Talk about the logistics of how you do that. It, Donald Trump signed a, a deal with the, with the Taliban that relaxed sanctions, or at least promised to, released prisoners. Biden didn't substantially alter that deal. Do you think that this should be a combination of sanctions on one side? And then also logistically, how do we get rid of the paperwork backlog that's keeping so many Afghans from being able to get out? Yes, Jerry, there are a lot of questions there. Um, yes. I, I just want to begin by saying and, and, and agreeing with the Congresswoman. I mean, this is a heart-wrenching situation. And it's a tragedy, but it's not an American tragedy. It's an Afghan tragedy. And as you say, it goes back 20 years. Uh, Representative Lee voted against the authorization of force resolution. She was the only one. She was prescient. But there were many people who saw what we were doing as 
as being uh, haphazard, as not having a strategy. You know, I would love people to see and read the uh, Washington Post Afghanistan Papers series, which was published in 2019. Maybe you talked about it on your show, but it's just a history in the hundreds and hundreds of pages of how politicians, generals, diplomats deceived the American people, how they kept thinking that we were going to turn the corner. I mean, I remember I was editor of Time magazine during that time, and every year we did a new Afghanistan cover about a new strategy. It's like someone once said, it's it's not a 20-year war, it's 21-year wars. And that is what's happened. And, and to your question about how we repair the breach is, uh, you know, we do as much as we can for as many people as we can. I heard uh, Jake Sullivan say that this morning. I heard uh, Linda Thomas-Greenfield on a, uh, just, I think, the previous show say saying there are uh, flights getting out of the uh, international airport every hour on the hour. So I think we're now hunkering down. The State Department people are working overtime, 24-7. And remember, those interpreters and those helpers all help people at the State Department, too. So people really have a vested interest in this, not just the military, but also people at the State Department. Yeah, I think it, it, it goes to show you that America cannot create reproductions of our culture in other countries and remake them in our image. There are some people who are going to cleave to those modernist norms, and those people are our friends. And then there's the country itself and its culture, and we can't change that. And America has this conceit that we can, and we clearly can't. Um, to your point, uh, Representative Houlihan, on the intelligence— there's a New York Times piece out today. I'll read just a little bit of it. And the, the headline is Intelligence Warned of Afghan Military Collapse Despite Biden Assurances. It says classified assessments by American spy agencies over the summer painted an increasingly grim picture of the prospect of a Taliban takeover of Afghanistan and warned of the rapid collapse of the Afghan military, even as President Biden and his advisors said publicly uh, that that was unlikely to happen as quickly, according to current and former government officials. I mean, we had Nita Khan on yesterday, who's a young journalist who was writing in 2019 that the Taliban already had half the country. It's not like they took it over, took it all over in eight days. They had a lot of it already. How, in your view, how was it missed? So I think that there were a lot of mixed signals, a lot of mixed intelligence signals, to be honest. I think one of the biggest things that we missed was the appetite and heart that the Afghan army had for defending and protecting itself and, and the gains that we collectively made together. And that was either a failure of intelligence for us to understand that or a miscalculation. We definitely knew when we made the decision to pull out that there would be, in all likelihood, uh, at least uh, at least some uh, takeover by the Taliban of places that we had. Uh, we didn't necessarily know that it would be quite as much as it is and quite as rapid as it is, but it's not, frankly, surprising when you when you look to, to your point about the history of this particular part of the world. And so here we are. We're at a place where our intelligence possibly has failed us, where we've made some decisions that need to be um, undone and redone. Uh, we need to be able to be asked for who's accountable for these kinds of decisions. We need to be able to have the hearings uh, and uh, in Congress and the oversight in Congress that is our duty and our mission to do. Uh, and we also need to, frankly, be supportive of the ways that we can get out of this. As we talked about the various steps in the short term uh, and in the midterm, we need to be thinking about some of the things that scare me and or keep me up at night, which is a lot of the weaponry, a lot of the things that we that we purchased for the Afghan army now possibly are in the hands of the Taliban. And we need to be thinking about what the implications of that are as well. So we're in a we're in a difficult place uh, and we need to be working together rather than pulling ourselves apart to be able to to make sure that we're coming out of this as safely as possible, both us yeah, and I also the Afghan people. 
Yeah, I mean, pulling ourselves apart. Well, that's already done um, politically. I don't even play the Republican responses. Richard, you know, I have sort of air. It's sort of airs of Mossadegh, you know, the CIA saying, well, let's get rid of that guy. He's not doing what we say and putting in this, this Shah of Iran that turns out to be a corrupt mess that the people didn't support. And then we were shocked that the mullahs took, the, took it back. You know, in this case, a lot of the reports you're hearing, Eamon Mohedin's done some great reporting and interviewed lots of people. It's not as if the president who the West supported had popular support. So was the, the, it feels like the failures go far beyond just r- ripping our military out of there in 20, 2003 and go into Iraq. It seems like it was much more systemic. Yes, I, I agree. I mean, these were not unknown unknowns, as Don Rumsfeld said, who got us in there. These are known knowns. I mean, I remember being in Kabul in 2013 and, and going to the presidential palace and a diplomat saying to me that President Karzai wasn't president of Afghanistan. He was president of Kabul. You know, yeah. we, we haven't had a successful fight there in a, in a very long time. And I think, you know, the thing about intelligence is intelligence is neutral. You know, people in intelligence, they tell the policymakers, uh, they tell the military, here's the situation. But then the policymakers have to make decisions. And sometimes they don't make correct decisions. And I think over 20 years, I mean, you know, and I agree with the congresswoman, I think, you know, we need, really need to look at what happened and what went wrong and, and why policymakers had this sort of Pollyannish idea that we were always turning the corner. And, you know, nobody likes to tell a president of the United States bad news and military folks yeah. don't like that either. But you have to do that. Yeah. And wars end ugly. I hate to break it to folks. The American people overwhelmingly wanted out of, of Afghanistan. This is what it looks like when you get out, when you rip the Band-Aid off. It's not pretty. And hopefully we will you know, salvage it by getting as many of our, our people who side with us out as we can. Thank you, Congresswoman Chrissy Houlihan. Thank you, Richard Stengel. Appreciate both of you. And up next on The Readout, the quick pivot on the right from pretending to care and be outraged about the fate of vulnerable Afghans to vehemently opposing letting any of them into the United States. The sole former refugee in Congress, Ilan Omar, joins me next. Plus, breaking news from Texas, where Governor Greg Abbott, who won't allow schools and businesses to protect themselves from COVID, has now tested positive for COVID himself. And tonight's absolute worst, Republicans are writing a work of fiction. The plot is weak, the hero is orange, and the conclusion is predictable. But it does have ninjas. Ah, the readout continues after this. Here's a question. Have you ever been prescribed a medication? Most likely, yes. Well, what about this question? Did you understand how it worked? The way your medication works in your body shouldn't be a mystery. Learn how Vivgart, Fgartigamod Alpha FCAB works by visiting vivgart.com slash MOA. That's V-Y-V-G-A-R-T dot com slash MOA. Brought to you by Argenix. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. 
That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. What has happened to the Afghan people over the past several decades is a global tragedy. The images of people desperate to flee are truly heartbreaking. Now, naturally, it should come as no surprise that the Republican Party has seized on these moments to score political points. Take, for example, Texas Representative Michael McCall, who told CNN that Biden will, quote, have blood on his hands for what they did. This is the same man who represents a state where more than 54,000 people have died from COVID. Tell me, Congressman, does Governor Abbott have blood on his hands for his abandonment of the people of the Lone Star State? What about the 626,000 Americans who died of COVID because of Donald Trump? You see, this newfound outrage, it just stinks of political opportunism. This is, after all, the party that stood by as the bloated retiree banned Muslim immigrants buddied up to the Taliban and shut our doors to refugees who needed our help. Over at Fox, you're reminded of what the party really thinks about the Afghan people. If history is any guide, and it's always a guide, we will see many refugees from Afghanistan resettle in our country in coming months, probably in your neighborhood. And over the next decade, that number may swell to the millions. So first we invade and then we're invaded. Is it really our responsibility to welcome thousands of potentially unvetted refugees from Afghanistan? All day, we've heard phrases like, we promised them. Well, who did? Did you? Did you? Meanwhile, crypt keeper Stephen Miller added to that repugnant commentary with his own special white nationalist flavor, tweeting, be warned, the State Department will use Biden's withdrawal fiasco as predicate for importing massive numbers from region with rush vetting and no ties to U.S. Joining me now is Minnesota Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. Her family fled Somalia's civil war. She spent four years in a refugee camp before fleeing to the United States in the 1990s. Congresswoman, um, I'm not surprised. I'll, I'm just going to preface this by saying none of this is surprising, that the people on the right who were just like 24 hours ago pretending to care about the Afghans, you know, people, suddenly are like, yeah, but don't send any of them over here. Uh, but I would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, it is. It is uh, not surprising, right? This is their their playbook. Uh, they know how to whip up their base into frenzy. The reality is that we've been in this conflict, in this war for 20 years. There are people who've helped us in this mission. There are people whose lives are going to be at risk. And we have to do everything that we can to bring them to safety. And we've done this many a times where we have evacuated people, airlifted them into safe spaces so that we can properly vet them and have them come to the United States as vetted refugees. I know a little bit about that. You know, um, yeah. I know what it's like to be a child in a family uh, scrambling for safety in a war-torn country. I know the rigorous process you go through to get vetted as a refugee. We are the most vetted people who come to the United States. The process is long and it doesn't just end 
when you arrive on the shores, it continues for years until you are eligible for citizenship at five years of entrance. And so I, I really um, hope that people understand that there is a certain promise that we've made and we can't break that promise. And that's not a promise um, that the United States made, but it's also a promise that our NATO allies have made. It's a promise um, that neighboring countries should fulfill. And we have to do everything to make sure that there is a multinational coalition leading this effort to save not just our allies, but every Afghani who's afraid for their lives, especially uh, young women and, um, you know, vulnerable men as well. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's infuriating to hear these people um, who voted against allowing more visas um, for Afghan allies. They literally voted against it. Lauren Boebert, who made a stupid joke about Build Back Better and thought she was clever, she was one of 16 Republicans who voted no when it came to approving more visas for Afghan allies. So they're not for these people. The names will sound to you much like the, ins the pro-insurrection crowd, the Andy Biggses of the world, the Mo Brooks of the world. And then on top of that, the Muslim ban still sticks in my craw. I'm not over it. Um, and I'm not even Muslim, and I'm not over it yet. The fact that people who stood by while the former president banned people strictly because they came from Muslim countries bugs me that they are now pretending to care and then also saying, don't send people here. Can you talk a little bit about the, the, the complexity of being a Muslim refugee and how their attitude sticks with you? Yeah, I mean, it's also the, the mixed messaging, right? They're trying to find something that sticks so that they can try to... Um, you know, put the, the president in bad light, lighting and sort of come after Democrats. We've seen the former president, the man who literally banned Muslims from, from coming to this country, say we should allow for Afghan refugees to come to the United States. You have the man who led us into this war, President Bush, say we should allow for Afghani refugees. And then you've got these crazy people on the right, um, doing you know what they what they always do uh, with their fear mongering and their hateful rhetoric, uh, the 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 reality is you know regardless of where you come from, um, immigrants and refugees are highly motivated. They are people who are seeking a better life. Uh, they come to this country. They put their head down. Everybody in every single community has bad apples. Um, but that is not the result of collective failure as refugees or as immigrants when we come to the United States. And I know what some of these people are uh, worried about is that they're worried that refugees like myself, when they come to this country, will outshine them. Um, but uh, that is just their own failure and their inability to, to find success in the ways in which refugees um, have found success in, in this country. We are going to uh, keep our commitment. We're going to keep our promise and we're going to keep pushing uh, the administration uh, and other countries to do their part. The Afghani people deserve not just our, our empathy, but they need our partnership and our allyship uh, to make sure that their lives are safe and prosperous. Well, I was going to say, there's one person I know who doesn't worry about it. They know that being outshined is happening. There's, I, I don't remember his name. I, I just think he looks like the annoying orange. What is his name? Uh, Charlie, Charlie Kirk, who literally said that what he fears is that there'll be millions of you. He named you by name. If you even want to be bothered with uh, responding to him, I want to give you the, that opportunity.
he needs geography classes and somebody needs to send him a globe maybe um just <laughs> not from afghanistan i'm from somalia um and somali refugees are in this country and many of them are prospering just as i have um and you know that man and others can cry about it but the reality is this is a country that welcomes refugees and they don't just welcome refugees they send one to congress there you go and my my uh advice to what is his name? Charlie? Cry more, dear, because we are going to be an open country just as we the Statue of Liberty ain't going nowhere. Uh, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, thank you so much. Really appreciate you being here tonight. All right. And still ahead, Texas Governor Greg Abbott has tested positive for COVID. Ta-da! His office says that so far he's not experiencing any symptoms. So, well, good thing he was already vaccinated. Am I right? We'll be back after this. Pandora makes it easy for you to find your favorite music. Discover new artists and genres by selecting any song or album and we'll make you a personalized station for free. Download on the Apple App Store or Google Play and enjoy the soundtrack to your life. Well, we have some breaking news out of Texas this evening. The office of Republican Governor Greg Abbott announced that he has tested positive for COVID. Abbott is vaccinated and his office says he's isolating and receiving antibody treatment. NBC News reports he's told people that he's received a third booster dose of the vaccine. His office did not respond to requests for comment. Last night, his reelection campaign tweeted video of Abbott addressing a large maskless crowd at a Republican club outside Dallas. The news about Abbott comes as Texas is seeing a surge in covid cases, with the governor standing firm on his ban on mask and vaccine mandates. Multiple regions across Texas are completely out of ICU beds, including in the Austin area, the state capital. And just last week, a Dallas County judge warned of zero beds available, zero for children in the days before the start of school. Over the weekend, the Texas Supreme Court sided with Governor Abbott, blocking lower court rulings, allowing districts to implement mask rules. But thankfully for Texas children, some school districts are defying the governor, defying his order despite the court ruling including Dallas and Harris County, home to Houston, and Bexar County, where San Antonio is located. Joining me now is Julian Castro, former HUD secretary and former mayor of San Antonio. He's now an MSNBC political analyst. Thank you for being here. It is helpful that you're also a former mayor. Your thoughts on the governor now testing COVID, the fact that he's still holding maskless events and refusing to allow school children to be protected with mask mandates. Well, it's absolutely maddening, Joy. It's the height of hypocrisy. I mean, you put out the stats there. Texas right now has one of the worst COVID-19 situations. Only 314 ICU beds left in a state of 29 million people. Uh, more pediatric uh, cases of COVID, I think, right now than any other state, or right around the same amount as Florida. Uh, it's surging here. And at the same time, the governor is in a tug of war with communities across the state and school districts that want to do everything that they can to protect children uh, and businesses that want to protect customers by requiring vaccination or at least requiring masks, uh, school districts that want to require masks, they're fighting that out in court. The governor has said, no, you can't do that. You can't take the safety precautions that you think are in the best interest of the community and to protect children. And at the same time, acting so irresponsibly. You saw the video of the event within the last 48 hours in Collin County. Uh, and then when he gets COVID, does everything that he possibly can 
to make sure that he's okay, gets access to Regeneron, mm. and perhaps a third booster shot, things that ordinary Texans, everyday Texans would not have access to, it is the height of hypocrisy. I, and I, try, I struggle to understand it because spreading more sickness and death doesn't strike me as smart politics. Here's just a couple headlines out of your state. In West Texas, a school district to, is going to close for two weeks due to COVID a week after classes started. It began uh, August 10 and has about 380 students serving the town of Sheffield. Time magazine reporting uh, a superintendent says they're mandating Austin schools must be masked. Uh, Stephanie Elzade, Elizade wrote, what if a child dies on my watch? How do I say to you, I'm really sorry. We did everything we could except for masking because the governor's executive order prohibited me from doing so. What does that do for a parent? How does that bring them comfort or solace? Do, do, can you get inside the heads of these Republican governors like Abbott who are saying schools may not prevent COVID from coming in? Because I don't get it. I don't, except to say that he's trying to appeal to a very vocal, small uh, Republican primary base because he's in the middle of the Republican primary with two people that are seen as even further to the right than him. Parents are feeling it all over the state. The other day, my six-year-old brought home this note from his public school uh, that says that two individuals at the school tested positive for COVID. Mind you, he'd only been in school for uh, about four days at that point. Yeah. Uh, the the lack of the ability of a lot of school districts to do everything that they can to protect these children is bad for the children, and it's making parents very angry toward the governor and the Republican Party here. Well, speaking of anger, there's this other side of it, too, where people are getting violent about masks, about masks, period, and even getting violent toward people who are making their own decision to wear masks. Here's a, a Fort Worth Star-Telegram article in which a parent ripped the face mask off a teacher in a confrontation at a school, a school in Austin. Pa uh, in a statement to parents, a superintendent wrote, in addition to one parent physically assaulting a teacher by ripping the mask off her face, others yelled at a teacher to take off her mask. This was at a meet the teacher event. School starts there tomorrow. I mean, it's it's bad enough that people are dumb enough to believe that it's somehow better to get COVID than wear a mask. But on top of that, the, we're seeing this around the country, anti-maskers assaulting people because they want to wear a mask. Your thoughts? Uh, I mean, it's nonsensical. It's become a proxy war for something else, something deeper. Uh, this is part of uh, the Trump Republican Party that basically says it's my way or the highway, that sees this, I think, as an extension of a culture war, of a changing America that they absolutely reject. It goes beyond just not wanting to wear a mask or thoughts of freedom. This goes to that deep frustration, that anxiety that they feel that the census numbers the other day probably shot up their blood pressure. Uh, <laughs> I think all of this goes together. Um, and at the end of the day, as we're seeing here with the governor, COVID doesn't care whether you're super conservative or you're super liberal. You're going to get it if you act irresponsibly like the governor and others have. And obviously, we wish him well. But once they do, they end up taking one of those hospital beds um, that are in very short supply right now. Uh, and everybody has an interest in doing what they can uh, to take safety precautions and to allow schools and businesses and others to do the same. Um, and in the least, let people protect themselves if you're not going to do it.
Why? And, and the idea is there is your body, my choice, that I get to make decisions for you. I can tell you what you need to wear on your body and that they think they have the right to do it. Well, I mean, they also think that with abortion. But let's go on to let I was going to say, this is, this is not yeah, they new think for in that, general, uh, Right. Fashion. It's sort of a yeah. you wonder how slavery existed for so long. People really do like to control other people. Uh, so let me ask you as a public policy matter, having worked on a federal level, do you think that we need federal mandates at this point to try to push it? Um, federal and corporate mandates to get around these governors? Yeah, I think that uh, the federal government should exercise more authority in the least, uh, as other nations have done, on on uh, airplanes, on uh, other types of transportation, other public spaces. We really, with the exception of states like California, we haven't even dipped our toe into that federally. Uh, so depending on what happens with COVID uh, and this Delta variant in, in the days and weeks to come, that may become more and more necessary. Uh, I know that that was not the first reaction or, you know, uh, inclination of a lot of uh, yeah. folks out there. It hasn't been of the president. But the worse this gets, the more serious yeah. it gets, I think the stronger measures you have to consider. When you've got people who are literally pro-COVID and want COVID to spread, I don't know if they still believe in this Scott Atlas herd immunity thing, but they obviously want COVID to spread. I think you got to do something at a federal level at this point because the, that, that's their desire is to make COVID spread. It's bananas. Uh, uh, Julian Castro, thank you very much. I really appreciate you. All right, don't go anywhere. Tonight's absolute worst is coming up straight ahead. As the cyber ninjas prepare to release the results of their pretend vote audit in Arizona. We'll be right back. There is a lot going on in the world right now. Much of it is infuriating, painful, and downright frightening. But there's also something happening right now in a building in Phoenix, a story that bears repeating. And that's the sham audit, or fraud it, produced by the Arizona GOP to propel Trump's big lie. State Senate President Karen Fan has confirmed that the political stunt is finally ending, that a report will soon be released. Not that MAGA heads will even read it, but really, nor should you. It will surely be riddled with that good old orange Kool-Aid, because similar to a flat earth convention or Marjorie Q. Green's Twitter feed, the Arizona audit is a petri dish of cultish delusions where a a firm called the Cyber Ninjas was somehow allowed to tamper with ballots and voting machines using blacklight in search of bamboo fibers to prove a racist theory that ballots were flown in from Asia. They searched for cheese dust, scoured the poop emanations of chickens, They used untested, uncertified equipment on ballots. And when a political leader, a Democratic secretary of state, called them out on it, they stripped her of her power. So in many ways, the report doesn't even matter. The damage is already done. Trump's election lie in the form of televised performance art, his favorite kind, flourished for four months, funded by Trump supporters in the millions. Now, we can't stress this enough. Every day, every minute this show went on was another day, another minute the Republicans normalized a takedown of our democracy. That's why their Beltway contingent can stonewall investigations into what happened at our Capitol. Why they side with terrorists who chanted, hang Mike Pence, staining this historic building with gallows and racial slurs and terror and feces, while ignoring how a supporter of the Proud Boys made threats against their colleague, then-Senator-elect Raphael Warnock posting statements threatening to kill him. Statements like, quote, dead men can't pass S laws. 
I will fight, so help me God. Hey, Republicans, what was that part about fighting terrorism again? The fraud, it may be over, but it served its purpose, normalizing a total takeover of elections to the point where voters will no longer decide elections. They will. It was all a ploy to undermine legitimate elections, and we see right through it, which is why every person involved in this anti-democratic charade is the absolute worst. Will other states take Arizona's lead? You bet they will. Three voting rights advocates will weigh in on what we can do about it after the break. There is growing pressure for Democrats to enact new voting rights legislation as states begin the once-a-decade process of redistricting, as Republican-controlled states are making moves that would restrict the voting power of their growing minority populations. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi today announced the Democrats' plan to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act when they return next week. Of course, the bigger problem still exists that any legislation passed through the House needs 60 votes in the Senate because of the filibuster, and there's no indication that that's going to go away anytime soon. Joining me now for what we're calling a strategy session on voting rights, Latasha Brown, co-founder of Black Voters Matter, Bishop William Barber, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, and Ari Berman, senior reporter for Mother Jones. Thank you all for being here. Really appreciate y'all. I just want to go down the list and have you all, you know, I guess, tell me what we're going to do and what you think we can do, given that it's great that we're going to have this pass in the House, but it ain't going nowhere in the Senate. Latasha, start with you. You know, I think the, I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, the bottom line is right now, as we're looking at the images of Afghanistan, this nation spent over one trillion dollars on a war supposedly in the name of democracy. And here it is. We have democracy being attacked right here domestically. And we're going to allow a tool like the filibuster to stand in this space. So I think we have to really deal with the elephant in the room. We're going to have to end the filibuster. Anything that starts and it creates a barrier for democracy, we've got to end it. We also have to organize. We've got to create good trouble. If democracy is going to be so, we're going to have to organize around that. And we need this federal legislation. I think it's going to, people are going to have to rise up to make sure that it is so. So, Bishop Barber, it it falls to you to explain to me how we get, there are about nine Republicans, Manchin and Sinema are the people out front. There's a good nine, ten of them who also don't want to end the filibuster. We can name a few that we think are on that list. How do you get them to change their mind? Well, first of all, let me say my sister Latasha is exactly right. If we fought a war there, we got to fight here, but fight nonviolently. We have to have mass moral action protests in D.C. and in the states. We got to have mass litigation with our best lawyers. We have to have a massive federal legislation. We got to have both H.R. 1 and H.R. 4, not either or the one that was written by John Lewis before the People's Act and the one named after him, then we must have mass political resistance. The CBC and the progressive need to say not another bill, not another bill. That's how you get those other senators. Nothing is going through. You're not getting any infrastructure, none of it, until you do right by voting rights and, and federal legislation. And then we need mass public education to make sure people understand it's not just a fight to help black people. Uh, that 56 million people use the methodologies to vote that they're trying to undermine in these state legislatures. We need to connect it to voting rights and living wages. The same people that fight against your living wages, the same ones fight against your voting rights. This is a this is an interlocking injustice that we must challenge. And we got to go to the states. Go to D.C., yes, that's why next Wednesday, Thursday, we're headed back to West Virginia from the 26th for a mass motorcade on mansion. We call everybody to ride on him, nonviolently, of course, but to ride on him. And we need to do that in 
every one of those Democratic senator states, especially because they that's hypocrisy. None of them ran saying that they would be against this. They didn't primarily saying that they only said it after they got the vote. And we can't stand for that or allow that to exist. And anybody that's saying you don't need all of this is not a leader, but a misleader. Yeah, and then Ari, I read, uh, give us the ballot. Uh, y- y- I know that you can explain to us in pretty simple terms. Let's say we go into the 2022 election with the laws as they are now. What does that wind up looking like? What it winds up looking like, Joy, is that the federal government did nothing to stop the greatest attack on voting rights since the end of Reconstruction. And history is going to repeat itself. People are going to be disenfranchised. We know that for a fact. And there will be the most extreme gerrymandering that we've seen in a long time as well. So the the clock is really running out here. Uh, 18 states have already passed 30 new laws to make it harder to vote. Texas could soon be next. Republicans could take back the House simply through gerrymandering for southern states. Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, and Texas. And so there are not a lot of days to spare here. A lot of these voter suppression laws have already gone into effect. Their new redistricting maps are going to go into effect in a matter of weeks or certainly a matter of months here. And it's just crazy to me that some Democrats would rather protect a relic of Jim Crow than protect voting rights for millions of Americans. I mean, it really doesn't seem like a hard call. And all we're asking is that the same rules apply to both. That if Republicans are making it harder to vote in the states on simple majority votes, then Democrats should be making able to make it easier to vote in the federal government through a simple majority. We're asking that all sides play by the same set of rules. You know, Latasha, it it appears the White House's response to that is that folks like yourself are just going to out-organize these laws. Is that true? You know, the bottom line, that's not our responsibility. If his responsibility, if the responsibility and taking the oath of office is that you are to protect all foreign threats to democracy abroad and domestically, it is the responsibility of the president and the Congress to actually represent the people and make sure that our rights and this democracy is protected. To the extent that we do that for our communities, it's because we love our communities and we believe that we have agency and we literally should be able to have input in any decision about us. But at the end of the day, for us to be in an argument or for us to to, to literally pass the buck to say that we're responsible for something that we elected you for is actually not only disingenuous, I think it's dangerous around when we're talking about what is the whole purpose of democracy in the first place? What is the whole purpose of the electoral process that if fundamentally the position that we put you in, that you're now saying that it's our responsibility to do what we elected you to do? You know, Bishop Barber, we've seen uh, nine uh, moderate uh, Democrats say we're not going to pass your infrastructure big bill, the $3.5 trillion, uh, what they're calling human infrastructure bill, unless we get the bipartisan infrastructure bill first. They're playing hardball and they have the numbers to do it. Would you suggest that the progressive caucus, that the black caucus play the same kind of hardball and say, fine, no infrastructure bills of either size until we get voting rights through the Senate? And right now, yesterday, <laughs> because that's what it is. Politics is about who gets one when and where. And as Ari said, they have weaponized the filibuster. The, it's not. It's not just a relic of Jim Crow. It's a relic of the you know anti women's legislation, anti voting legislation, anti uh, consumer protection. It is a terrible tool. And and we should be saying very clearly. 
First of all, also, Joe, it's a coward filibuster. At least in the past, they had to stand on the floor and fight, you know, and, and speak. This is a coward filibuster. They're cowards, right? And so we should be saying, you don't get anything. You don't get your road. You don't get your bridge. You don't get your utility grid unless you pass all of this. We want the infrastructure of our democracy, which is voting. We want the infrastructure of our daily lives, which is living wages. We want all of it and not some of it. And the CBC, the progressives have the power. We cannot let one or two senators run this entire democracy into the ditch and have more power than 80-some members. If you combine the CBC and Progressive, you're talking a whole lot of members in the House. And, and so it's time to stand up. It's time to fight back. This is not tiddlywinks. This is about the soul and the future of this democracy. And that's why we got to have pressure in the street. We got to have pressure in the suites. We've got to have pressure everywhere. And again, I'm going to say anybody who claims to care about these issues and says things like, no, we don't need to deal with the filibuster. No, we don't need mass protests is a misleader and not a leader. And, you know, Ari, Kristen Sinema was, was asked about this on The View, and she said, if you get rid of the filibuster, then when we want to block something bad that the Republicans are doing, we can't do it. Well, how would you answer her? Well, Kirsten Sinema said, if you get rid of the filibuster, then Republicans will do things like ban mail-in voting. Well, guess what? Republicans are already doing that. Already Republicans doing are already using the power they have everywhere to make it harder to vote, using the power they have everywhere to do extreme gerrymandering. Democrats aren't using the power they have to protect voting rights. So it's asymmetric warfare here. You have one side threatening to arrest Democrats because they don't want to make it harder to vote, where the other side is essentially giving Mitch McConnell veto power over protecting American democracy. So all we're saying is, Democrats, use the power you have, not just to help yourself, but to help That's tens right. of millions of Americans. It's not about helping Democrats. It's about helping democracy writ large. That's what these bills will do. That's why the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act are so important. We're, at, we're about out of time, but Latasha, I'm going to give you the last word. Are the civil rights, all the mainstream and all of the newer civil rights groups all going to hang together on this? You know, all of the civil rights organizations that I've worked with and been connected with, People's Campaign, Black Voters Matter, you know, the National Coalition, many of them, you know, have literally stood in this space for weeks. Yeah. All summer we've been getting arrested and we've been protesting. Yeah. So, yes, we're standing in a space that we see protests as part of our power and we will stand and continue to protest until we get voting rights. Amen. Amen. We're with you. Uh, Latasha Brown, Bishop William Barber, Ari Berman, working for the right cause, democracy. That's tonight's readout. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.